Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. I am so pleased to share today's episode with you. I had the opportunity to bring a legendary guest onto the show, Dr. Dan Siegel. He is an absolute giant in the world of psychology, psychotherapy, and interpersonal neurobiology. As you'll hear in the beginning of our conversation, his work is integral to my life as a therapist and a teacher, and in my life as a wife and a mother. Dr. Dan Siegel is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. He's also the executive director of the Mindsight Institute, which focuses on the development of Mindsight, teaches insight, empathy, and integration to individuals, families, and communities. Dr. Siegel has published extensively for both the professional and lay audiences. His five New York Times bestsellers are Aware, The Science and Practice of Presence, Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human, Brainstorm, The Power and Purpose of the Teenage Brain, and two books with Tina Payne Bryson, PhD, The Whole Brain Child, and No Drama Discipline. It was such a treat to speak with Dan about his current initiatives and to answer a thoughtful listener question about parenting and breaking intergenerational patterns. I cannot think of a better individual to consult with me on these issues. He approaches the question with such wisdom and compassion. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hi, Dan. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Alexandra, thank you for having me. So, you know, you and I have crossed paths a few times at Psychotherapy Networker, but this is our first time talking. And what I need you to know right off the bat is it's impossible to overstate the profound impact that your work has had on every aspect of my life. Oh my gosh. <laughs> We're just going to start right there. Oh, right thank there. you. I became a mama. We became parents in 2002. 
So I technically had to go it alone for like a year before Parenting from the Inside Out came out. But then Mm -hmm. I had that book that was with me when we were parents of really little people. And then when our kids were a bit older, I had the whole brain child with me. And then as they became teens, I had Brainstorm with me. So you have had a really wonderful publishing schedule that has just tracked right along with our family's development. And I have just savored those books and taught from them, taught parenting workshops from them. And they've been central to who I am as a mother. But then you also need to know that as a therapist and an author and a speaker, I cite your work all the time. I teach your work. I share your work. So I bring you with me just about everywhere I go. So my first thing is just thank you. Thank you for you. You are quite welcome. And I'm glad we could coordinate the schedule of your raising children (laughs) with um, (laughs) writing books with my wonderful co-authors, Mary Hartzell and Tina Payne Bryson. It's an honor to work with them. And it's really uh, a lot of gratitude that I can say we all would receive that uh, it was helpful and supportive of your journey as a parent. So when we start an episode of Reimagining Love and I get to have a guest expert with me, I like to start with this relational self-awareness question of mine. Are you ready for the question? Uh, As ready as I hope I can be. Yes. (laughs) I would love for you to talk with me and with us about a growing edge that you are currently working on in one of your important relationships and what it's been teaching you lately. You know, right at this moment, I think the biggest growth edge is with the students who come to the Mindsight Institute. And, you know, I've been teaching now for over 30 years. And as culture in on the planet, the human ways that we connect with each other, and especially the United States have evolved over the, the viral pandemic, we've realized that there is a pandemic of social injustice. And as a, a person with white skin living in a white dominant society, it's never been more clear, I think, to many of us in this position of being in the majority, that we've actually missed out on what people who've been marginalized have been saying for a long, long time, for hundreds of years. And so, you know, I'm really trying to recognize the privilege that being in white skin has meant and having the educational background I have and the professional training, and also just in terms of my gender identity and my sexual orientation, being in the majority gives us this experience of not having to realize the ways in which being identified from the outside as a member of a certain race or a certain sexual orientation or gender identity that's not in the majority, you can be marginalized and dehumanized. It's easy as a white heterosexual male to to just not even think about those things. So I think the cutting edge for me lately has been to kind of wake up to that privilege and to wake up to the ways unintentionally it can be harmful in actually ignoring the meaning of the socially constructed race that is the process that gives rise to the horrible dehumanization of racism. And sadly, in unintentional and kind of painfully ironic way, by not recognizing that someone is from a marginalized group, 
even though the intention might be to see everyone as an individual, you know, the unique individual they are, which of course they are, but not recognizing that then you miss on things. And there's a very simple example I'll give is, you know, as a scientist, there were studies out of UCLA and other places that showed that when you linguistically name an emotional state using the left hemisphere's linguistic abilities, you calm the whole brain, including the right hemisphere, which sometimes experiences more direct, intense emotional arousal. So I made up this phrase, name it to tame it. So recently, you know, and that's been very useful for a lot of people, and it's rewarding to make up a phrase and people you know, find it helpful. Mm-hmm. But recently, a colleague of mine uh, actually mentioned through some of the works at our institute that name it to tame it was triggering for her as an African-American woman, because the history of people for 400 years in the United States as slaves who were viewed by the majority as wild, needing taming, really triggered her. Well, when I heard that, um, I said, oh, my God, I never thought of taming that way, but I'm going to change it. So I changed it to name it to frame it, meaning put it in a frame like a picture frame so you can see it and then work with it because you can contain it within the frame. And that's been more useful. And that was this collaborative communication about my not having that same triggering and not being aware that it would trigger. So those are, that's an example of things where I'm really trying. And unfortunately, when you're in a position of privilege, you can be blind to your own blind spots. So you actually don't know what you don't know. So I'm trying to be really open and inviting the students at the Mindsight Institute to not only talk about this and be aware of it, that we all have implicit bias, but to give us feedback about times when we unintentionally mess up and how we can together as a community of learners support a culture of diversity, of inclusion, really of mutual belonging that uh, we try to create at the Mindsight Institute. I try to keep a lot of things going, the emotional experience of it, the relational awareness of it. And also, you know, the scientific knowledge that Ed Tronick so beautifully writes about, about ruptures being inevitable in human relationships And the key is not to say, oh, I'm a bad person because there was a break in our connection and communication, but instead see that as human. And then to say, well, how do I learn from this rupture and make a reconnection that involves, you know, being very open and showing up for the experience and then making a repair. And if that's done collaboratively, then it can be a beautiful thing. Like in this example of name it to tame it. There it was. Well, and now I get to use that going forward because I Absolutely. use name entertainment all the time. So that's wonderful. So now I will spread that message. And for that, for the person who brought it to you, you know, as somebody who has moved through the world as a person of color, how many times did that person have the experience of not speaking up, of just stuffing it down, of thinking it's not safe enough in here to raise this concern for you, that your classroom became a safe enough space that she would take what is absolutely a risk of letting a white person know there's something upsetting and triggering and not quite right here. Like that is a risk, absolutely. And one that she probably either hasn't taken because who can take risks when things are unsafe or has taken and been shut down because the white person moved into defensiveness or shame. And so I can imagine that there's a way in which that experience, like she gets to settle that experience someplace inside of her that hopefully then gets to live in contrast to what very likely were many other experiences that did not go 
the way the experience with you went. Absolutely. And that's, you know, I think that's our responsibility and, yeah. you know, getting informed, you know, whether it's watching, you know, videos about this, about not only white privilege, but reading books like Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, or Ibrahim Kendi's book on uh, how to be an anti-racist or stamp from the beginning. There are lots of ways that a number of us, and hopefully it's a big shift in our white dominant culture, where we didn't want to say white dominant culture before, and uh, ignoring the 400-year history of slavery and then even after slavery formally ended, the systemic racism that made it basically continued slavery. All you have to do is study redlining and other Jim Crow laws and other ways in which people of color, especially you know African-Americans, have been marginalized, dehumanized, and killed, as we're learning, sadly, with the many murders, including that of George Floyd, which, since it was captured on a video, couldn't be ignored by the world. And I think that that video capturing of what has been happening anyway, not you know off video, made people go, whoa, what is going on here? And you know, when you understand the biology of in-group, out-group distinctions that the human brain makes, especially under threat, that if someone is defined as a member of the out-group, when there's a threat, that individual is considered not a human being. Mm-hmm. And the part of our own brain that looks at a person and says, oh, there's a person with feelings, with a family, with meaning to their life. I'm going to honor them and treat them with empathy and compassion. If they're in your in-group, sure, you treat them with kindness. But sadly, the human brain can be not only compassionate to in-group people, but incredibly hostile and murderous towards the out-group people, which basically defines not only these terrible, terrible, terrible murders that keep on going on, but the whole experience of genocide mm-hmm. and racism is based on this. And all you have to do is read the book cast by Wilkerson or implicit bias, I think by Jennifer Everhart, that we all have these biases. So we need to use consciousness to grow beyond it, as your question is asking us to do. And in the anti-racist frame, it's not I'm a racist or I'm not a racist, as Kendi powerfully describes. Yes. It's you're living a life of actively trying to go against racism because those are the real choices, racism or anti-racism, where you say, yeah, we all have implicit biases. Can we use consciousness, collaboration, connection to rise above what is an understandable human in-group, out-group distinction that we need to get beyond? Which is, in some ways, it's the most natural extension of the work you've been doing for decades is this is just another lens of relationship, of noticing what the pattern, the knee-jerk, less-than-conscious reaction is in working again and again and again to refine, go back to that plane of possibility, and then select another kind of a response. But yes, it's happening what we do within an individual, what we do within a couple system, what we do within a family system, what you're talking about now is how do we bring those understandings to this larger system? You know, as an attachment researcher myself, for all these decades studying communication patterns and relationships, I think one of the understandable patterns that happens is instead of calling forward, you know, there's a process of calling out, you Mm -hmm. know and saying, this microaggression hurt me, 
you are, you know, doing this bad thing, even though if it's not intentional, it's a bad, bad thing, you're a bad person. And that calling out creates an automatic, as I've experienced myself, defensiveness that doesn't lead to collaboration. So with Elijah Cummings, you know, Elijah in this workshop had just been on a television show. He came and one of the questions he asked in this workshop to me uh, when we were starting our relation together, he said, Dan, what should I do when the host says, you know, Elijah, do you think that's racism? And he goes, you know, where if I say it's racism, if I pull that card, it's going to shut down collaboration, Elijah Cummings said. So I said, well, instead of pulling the racism card as you're naming it, Elijah, what if you considered the word dehumanizing? Mm-hmm. And just said that act was dehumanizing. And then it just said, Oh, my, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to dehumanize you. And then it isn't loaded with all the things of are you a racist or you're not a racist. And Elijah was really excited about using that in a way, calling someone in right. rather than calling them out. And what we learned in the Wheel of Awareness practice was the calling in is a way of doing the inner work you know, that Rhonda McGee so beautifully talks about professor of law at University of San Francisco. She talks about about the inner work of racial justice and that there's an inner work as a white person, too, of saying, okay, how do I go inward? So whatever kind of defensiveness I might have or whatever kind of implicit bias we all have, I get to that hub beneath the rim. You know, I get to that plane of possibility where connection open awareness and love is there so I can really show up for this experience. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you. Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and UA Shu. Julie and UA bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. Well, you have set up a really easy segue for me because we have a listener question. But before we get to the listener question, I have to ask you a bit about adult attachment styles, because I've been doing the work of relationship education for over two decades now. And so I have been teaching undergraduate students about attachment science for years and years and years. What's wild and wonderful is attachment science has very clearly exported therapy offices and the ivory tower and is now in the vernacular. It's in the public sphere. It's on Instagram. It's in social media. There's lots and lots of talk about attachment styles. And I know that what what we will refer to them as is attachment strategies, right? I know that's the language that you use rather than attachment styles, which points me to my question. I sometimes struggle with the way in which I feel like the risk of attachment styles being so in the common language is that they end up getting talked about as 
categories, as identities, rather than the way that you would talk about them. And this is especially around the modern dating landscape is so incredibly complicated. I have been married to the same guy for 23 years. And so I have a ton, ton, ton of empathy for the challenges and complexities of dating. But there are ways in which I hear people say things like they're avoidantly attached and they're anxiously attached and really trying to size this up almost like the way we would talk about a zodiac sign or some other kind of descriptor that ends up being pretty far removed from the underpinnings of it. So I would love for us to just talk a bit about what do you want people, especially who are dating, who are early in partnerships, to be thinking about and keeping in mind around their own attachment approaches and strategies and what they might be picking up in a potential partner. Well, Alexander, you have named some of the fundamental issues around the translation of attachment research and theory, which can be called very appropriately attachment science with, you know, applied attachment, let's just make of that term. The first thing to say from the science point of view is that there's a history of two individuals getting together to collaborate to form the basis of the science of attachment. And that's Mary Ainsworth and John Bowlby, who are no longer physically with us in a living embodied form, but they live on with us in our discussions. The original emergence from Bowlby and Ainsworth's work was to study parents and how they interact with their infants and then later with their children and then to study different strategies, if you will, of parenting. And that we'll just call, you know, the original attachment research. One of the first graduate students of Mary Ainsworth is a, you know, an individual named Mary Main. And Mary Main became my teacher and I studied with her in Virginia. She was at UC Berkeley, but we spent part of a summer in Virginia where I got a chance to actually work with and be with Mary Ainsworth, who was still alive then. And in that experience, the emerging field of attachment research was coming into what's called representational aspects. That is, we were studying the adult attachment interview and how you could see how an adult had what's called a state of mind with respect to attachment that could be correlated with how the infant would become attached to that parent. So at around the same time, Another set of researchers was taking a different strategy to study initially romantic adult attachments with a simple survey that you could put in a newspaper and ask people, when you're in relationships, do you feel like you can get your needs met and they deserve to be met? And if you said yes, you were called a secure style. And that's where the word style came up. Mary Ainsworth and Mary Main never used the word style, at least in their teaching of me. And when I, by accident, would use the word style, Mary Main would correct me and say, it's not a shoe. Don't call it a style. And I'd say, yeah, because it's, it's a little clunky to say state of mind with respect to attachment. So we can say category or strategy or approach, you know, yeah. but we never use the word style. So when, when you see someone using the word style, they're probably a part of this other romantic attachment study, which has its own validity, mm-hmm. but did not begin by studying children. They began by this survey that Phil Shaver initially put out into the Denver Post and later with his work with Mario Michelinzer 
they were able to study all sorts of cool things like the brain and stuff. Unfortunately, the styles that romantic adult attachment has defined and looked at the brain and shown their correlates of brain function with how you answer this short survey. Like, you know, when I'm in relationships, the uh, other people are too needy and I don't really have any needs that need to be met. That would be called avoidant or, you know, when I'm in relationships, my needs are never met and my partner's never enough or something that might be called, I think they would call that anxious style or something like Uh that. That little survey, which takes, you know, five minutes to answer, very little or no money to actually correlate the data. Very different from the hour and a half adult attachment interview and the hours and hours and hours of going over the transcript of that interview and then coming up with this adult attachment, the original adult attachment being the AAI, the adult attachment interview, but the same term adult attachment was used by the style romantic people, Phil Shaver and Mario Mikkelenser. Both approaches have validity. Mm-hmm. However, they don't correlate with each other. So this is a conundrum for the field Mm -hmm. that you have them both having validity, only they don't overlap. So I wish they would because it'd be a lot cheaper to give a little five minute survey. Seriously, that's right. Than the roadblock of needing the funding and the time and the training, you know, to do the adult attachment interview. So I got a National Institute of Mental Health training grant back in 1989 to study the adult attachment interview. And then since that time, because I've been a therapist, you know, for a long time, I've used the AAI, the adult attachment interview for most of my patients. You know, so they get it. And, and I've seen over time, an in-depth view of how the process of change emerges with an individual that I'm having the privilege to work with. Anyway, that's very different from the style romantic attachment that the book Attached is based on even though they don't make the distinction and statements like your attachment style is genetically based. That is not true with let's just call it developmental attachment, but apparently there is some degree of genetic uh, thing. So it's more like temperament. So Mm -hmm. someone asked me recently, what do I think is the reason they don't correlate? It may be that the adult attachment interview that I'm trained to give and that looks at developmental attachment is really looking at your ability to offer care for others. Mm -hmm. And it has a huge correlation with how that offering went to your child and shaped their pattern of attachment. Whereas the romantic attachment, I know Phil and Mario don't want me to use that word. I don't know what any other word to use because they used adult attachment. I want to distinguish it from developmental studies. So I'll just go ahead and use it even though they don't want to because it's more than romantic, but the romantic adult attachment style stuff, that may be your ability to receive care, something like that. And maybe that's related to your temperament. So I'm working now with uh, several colleagues on a model that looks at how developmental attachment experience combines with temperament to shape the emerging personality you have. So it may be that what the romantic adult attachment style researchers are studying is personality that's influenced by temperament, which does have genetic influence. Whereas the developmental attachment people, which I'm trained as, we're looking at more relational shaping that's uh, independent of temperament, Mm -hmm. but it shapes personality also. Mm -hmm. So we may be looking at 
either caregiving or care receiving. Receiving. Um, and one may be primarily temperament. You know, they haven't named it that way. They call it attachment styles, but it may actually be more a temperament thing. You know, and that's probably why their statements, oh, it's genetic. So if you're dating someone who has this attachment romantic style and they have, you know, insecurity, you know, run for the hills because mm-hmm. they'll never change. In our view, developmental attachment view from the science of developmental attachment where it began, these attachment categories are completely changeable. Yes. You know, and so that's where the stance of, oh, it's genetic and just make sure you're dating a person with the right style. That is so against what developmental attachment science says. And in my own work over the last 30 years, helping people transform their attachment category, their attachment strategy towards security. And it's not a genetic thing. What the research shows is that why understanding attachment, why the science of attachment lands so deeply for people is it's a very powerful way for people to start to get their heads and their hearts around the fact that our past travels with us and gets activated in powerful ways in our adult intimate relationships. So that... As a bridge, it's a really effective bridge of getting people to start to look at how family of origin dynamics, early adaptations, then play out in the kinds of needs and longings and distortions sometimes we will make of our partners. So it's it's incredibly helpful in that way, as long as we also include the aspect of it's changeable, right? This is what couples therapy does. This is what deepening relational self-awareness does, is it helps us make sense of the things that we experienced growing up. And that's a, a through line in your book, Aware. I mean, this is a through line in your work preceding the book, Aware, but that there's what happens to us. And then there's how we make sense of what happens to us. And it's the sense making that so powerfully frees us up from those early adaptations to come up with some new moves, some new relational moves that we may not have had available to us when we were small. Exactly. And you know, there's so much in what you just said that's so important and so powerful. I'll just start with the first way you began was you you used the phrase, our heads and our hearts. And I was so grateful that you did that because so many people say our minds and our hearts. And, you know, I've worked for a long time <laughs> to try to have the world consider that the mind is actually much bigger than the head. And that, if you will, you could say there's the brain in your head, there's a brain around your heart, there's a brain around your intestine, and you have this whole embodied brain that has these three networks, if you will, or parallel distributed networks. The next thing to say is that because the mind is not only fully embodied, but it's fully relational, Mm -hmm. then, you know, from a developmental attachment point of view, which is a phrase I made up just because people get confused by the romantic attachment style approach and the research, the hard, hard research across cultures on developmental attachment. So I, we needed a qualifier. So if we just say attachment science gives us a feeling like I can be a part of a relationship that I can give and I can receive, then about 20% of the population doesn't get that. And they're, they're not really seen, you know, they may be safe but they're not seen and they're not soothed easily. So they develop an approach, which is basically you as my parent are not giving me what I need. I'm not a part of a we. Um, So I better just go it alone. And that 
early sense of autonomy to survive, mm-hmm. that's the strategy for one out of five people in the United States. So you're talking about around the world, percentages are different, but in the US, that's the percentage. For about 15%, one five, you get what's called ambivalent attachment, where, you know, we've talked about these S's of, are you safe? Well, you're safe, but you're not really seen accurately and you're not soothed reliably. It's sometimes yes, sometimes no, sometimes yes. So you have a form of insecure attachment called ambivalent. So here, instead of the avoidantly attached child, so you don't say that the child's avoidant, you say the relationship with the primary caregiver is avoidant. It's a mm-hmm. relationship description. Mm-hmm. Here, the ambivalence is, my God, I've got to increase my attachment network to try to enhance how I'm going to connect with you, my parent, because I don't know if you're there. You might be, you might not be, you might, you know, so it's this intrusiveness and this uncertainty. So there's a lot of ambivalence, literally. I, I think you're going to be there, but you may not be there. So that's ambivalent attachment. And then what we study in developmental attachment is something called disorganized attachment, which in earlier studies, we would say is like around 5 to 10% of the population. But now some people are saying it's closer to 25 to 30%. So it's, it's just maybe reassessed. As, it's a complicated empirical reason why that's mm-hmm. said. But in any event, it's not that it's rare. And here what you get is, in terms of these S's, a child is not safe because the parent is the source of fear. And so there's kind of a biological paradox created where the deeper networks in the brain that say, hey, I'm being terrified, I should get away from the source of terror. That's fine. But then a little bit higher in the brain is a network of attachment, which says, hey, if I'm scared, I better go to my attachment figure. If the attachment figure, the mother, the father, or someone else taking care of the child is the source of terror, there's a biological paradox. You have one body, but one network says go toward them to be protected. The other says go away from them because they're the source of terror. So you fragment into what's called dissociation and you develop disorganized attachment. So these are the four groupings, secure, I call it non-secure, avoidant, non-secure, ambivalent, and the disorganized form of non-security. And what we do then is understand, you know, you can see this in the book Brainstorm, you know, it's so funny. I, some people said before it came out, don't put a section on attachment for adolescents because I wrote Brainstorm for adolescents themselves to read. I said, why not? They said, because those kids are still living with their parents and you're going to inform <laughs> them of what might not be going right at home. I said, well, what's wrong with that? And they said, well, you're going to create problems. I said, I'd rather them yes. go to their parents and say, hey, you know, I've yes. been scared of you or hey. Mm you know, you're not very connecting to me or, hey, you're giving me ambivalent messages, ambiguous messages. I'd rather them go and understand what's going on in their brain. Absolutely. Because then where attention goes, neural firing flows, neural connection grows, they can do something about it earlier while their brain is remodeling. So I left it in and the adolescents who read it with the feedback we get is a very important part of the book, you know. So I say all that Mm -hmm. because it comes back to exactly what you said. The key is change is possible. Mm -hmm. So if you see an attachment thing for the public where they're saying, oh, the science of attachment says you can't change. So if you're dating someone like this, just leave if they're not Mm -hmm. secure. You know, that is so not the case of attachment science. Mm -hmm. You know, it may be in this attachment style, romantic stuff, but the deep developmental attachment where it came from and Bowlby and Ainsworth said this from the beginning, is these are working models that can work to change towards security. 
Mm-hmm. Beautiful. We have a question from a listener that I think will bring some of these threads together. So I'd like to read it to you. She's a listener who writes in from London and she says, after years of therapy that I have done, I still feel scared and a sense of responsibility when I think of having children. I grew up in a very abusive family and the thought of ever hurting my child or doing something similar to what my family had done to me makes me feel very scared sometimes. I think having a child is a great responsibility, one that many people take too lightly. How do I make sure that my hypothetical children will be happy, healthy, and safe? In a way, having grown up in an abusive family means the bar is really low for me to do it better than my family had done it. And I know that I'm very different from my family, but sometimes I still get scared. Where do you want to start with this question? Yeah, first of all, thank you for the question. Mm -hmm. And just the fact that you're asking that question is the deep source of an answer to your question, which is, your capacity for awareness and looking at the science of how change happens tells us that you are in exactly the state of mind to invite growth and change. So, you know, when I wrote the textbook, the graduate school textbook, The Developing Mind, in its first edition, you know, my daughter was in preschool. The preschool director, Mary Hartzell, asked me to give lectures about the textbook to both parents and teachers. So I did these these lectures for the parent group and our daughter was in school there. And, you know, we were going through what it would mean to make sense of your life and build on the science of attachment, developmental attachment, to say that the best predictor of how a child turns out is not what happened to the parent, but how the parent has made sense of what happened to them. And you can have had the worst abuse you can imagine. And I've worked with lots of people like this who then raise children. And if they've made sense of their life, as the research shows in my clinical experience over 30 years supports, they are going to have children who are thriving. So let me repeat that. The research finding shows that if you've had the most horrible of childhoods, but have done the work to make sense of what happened to you, you can free yourself up from repeating those abusive patterns on your children. Now, that research finding to me is the most important science finding for parenting and for psychotherapy and for life. So that you can say, well, oh my God, the past happened. I can't change it. Well, you can't change the past, but you can change how you come to understand in a deep way how the past affected you, how you adapted to the past. And then in the present moment, with that new way of making sense of your life, then find new strategies of relating. So when Mary was seeing me give these lectures and one of the moms came to a lecture and and she said, Dan, I got to tell you something. I said, what? She goes, you know, all these years, our kids were three and a half, four years of age, you know, all these years I would flip out and scream at my daughter. And I kept on saying to myself, well, it doesn't matter because she's too young to remember. But last night, the lecture you taught about memory and about narrative and emotion and all that stuff. And I came to realize that it wasn't my fault what I was doing, but it is my responsibility. Responsibility, Yeah. And she said the shame that before she would feel so ashamed of what she was doing, the shame would shut her down 
And then she would just rationalize and say, oh, my daughter's too young. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. So this way, by saying it's not my fault, it is my responsibility. Mm-hmm. She didn't just say, oh, yeah, this I was abused as a child, which she was. And so this is natural for me to do. No, she said, OK, I was abused, so it's not my fault. But it is my responsibility to do something about it. Well, that was so inspiring to me. And Mary then came to me and said, you know, why don't we do a workshop together? And she was such a, she's no longer embodied with us now, but, you know, she was such a wonderful person. So we started teaching workshops together, but we looked around at what books were around that taught parents how to make sense of their life based on attachment research. There was zero, there still is nothing Mm -hmm. except our book. So we wrote Parenting from the Inside Out as a really a big hug for all potential parents or all parents to say, we're going to walk you through what the science shows about making sense of your life so that you can have the skills and the support to make sense of some of the most horrible things that may have happened and liberate yourself from those patterns that you had to adapt back then and now develop the way towards security. So I never would have written any of these other parenting books had I not written Parenting from the Inside Out first with Mary Hartzell and all the ones with Tina Payne Bryson, you know, The Whole Brain Child, No Drama Discipline, The Yes Brain, and The Power of Showing Up. So in terms of this person asking the question, I would urge you to go to Parenting from the Inside Out, but know from Alexandra and from me that we've seen it so many times that people may be scared of what's going on, but they can take the steps to make sense free themselves up from past patterns because you're absolutely right in your intuition. Someone who didn't Mm -hmm. make sense will be likely to do things they didn't even want to do. So that's the good news is that the making sense process is a lifelong journey and making repair of any ruptures that do arise. That's the key. There's no such thing as perfect parenting. There's just being present as a parent, showing up. And Mm -hmm. all these books will help you do that. You start aware with this really powerful metaphor that I don't know that I've read. Maybe it's been somewhere else and maybe I've missed it, but it just landed so deeply for me of the salt in the espresso cup. Yeah. That was such a, it captured for me, my own journey of shifting away from reactivity or freezing or fleeing all these places that I can be at risk of going because we're all at risk of going there and just increasing. Like, I feel like I'm always like, expanding my chest to kind of capture this idea of like creating ever more containment inside of myself to be able to hold the challenges of what's happening around me rather than getting hooked and activated and foreclosing on a solution by fighting or fleeing or freezing. So can you talk about a bit that salt analogy that just worked so well for me? Absolutely. And, you know, what Alexandra is referring to is the beginning of the book, Aware. And that's a whole set of skills to do the wheel of awareness. And there's an accompanying workbook called Becoming Aware that lets you, you know, learn the the skill of what we're about to describe. So while we're going to talk about the concept of this analogy of the salt, just know that there are very accessible practices that when parents learn them, they can be present with their kids. And I'll give you a short example too in a moment, but let's talk about the analogy first. So so the analogy I start aware with is a simple one that just says, if you have a container of water, that's the size of real small, like an espresso cup, really teeny container, 
and you take a tablespoon of salt and think of the tablespoon of salt as a challenge in life, whatever it might be. You know, your child's refusing to let you brush her teeth or, you know, she will only let mommy put her in bed and you're the father or something that's just challenging in a parenting experience. That's the tablespoon of salt. So if your container of awareness is our metaphor for this espresso sized cup and you dump the challenge into that, stir it up, what's it like to drink? It's going to taste awful. It's awful. It's way too salty. You cannot metabolize the salty water. That's why you, you, can, you can't just drink ocean water. Your body can't handle salt water. So now you say, okay, what if I could somehow cultivate awareness to be like the size of a hundred gallon tank, a container that big? Okay, let's say you could do that. And that's what the wheel of awareness allows you to do, but we'll get to that in a moment. So if you could, now you have a hundred gallons of water, life brings you a challenge. Again, it's the size of a tablespoon of salt that made the espresso cup container too salty drink. Now, imagine a hundred gallons of water. You take a tablespoon of salt, stir it up in the hundred gallons. What do you think that water is like mm -hmm. to drink? It's fine to drink. Mm -hmm. You've dissolved the challenge in a spacious container of awareness, right? So now you take that analogy and you go, oh my God, how can I get a big container of awareness? Then we say the wheel of awareness mm -hmm. will teach you how to do it. It's a practice I developed in the you know, late 90s. It's come around a table where the center of the table was glass and the outside was wood rim. And then, you know, no one wanted to call it the table of awareness. So they said, you know, hey, this looks like a wheel. And so it has like a thing that looks like a spoke. And so we would metaphorically move the spoke around the rim. And the rim was everything you could be aware of, like hearing and seeing and smelling and tasting and touching on the first segment. You then move the spoke over again to the second segment, which is the sensations of the body, like your gut feelings or your heartfelt sense. Then you move the spoke over again to mental activities like thoughts and memories and emotions. And then you move the spoke over to the fourth segment, which is your sense of relational connections. And in an advanced step that you learn in both becoming aware and aware, you learn to bend the spoke around right into the hub itself. And that's where we got this experience of the acronym COAL is used in a new way. This way is connection, open awareness, and love mm -hmm. is what people tend to find there in these tens of thousands of people that have been surveyed. So when you start learning to distinguish the hub from the rim mm -hmm. with doing the regular wheel of awareness practice, you are expanding the container of consciousness. For most of us, before we do a practice like this, the container is very small. So let me give you a parenting example of how this wheel of awareness practice happens and why it's helpful. So I'll be the parent in this case. So Alexandra is my child. She's two, mm -hmm. but she won't let me brush her teeth. So I said, okay, well, you brush your teeth. No, I'm not going to brush her teeth. Well, mm -hmm. I need to brush her. No, I'm not going to brush her. No. And I start feeling so ashamed that, you know, I'm a child psychiatrist. I'm studying attachment. And, <laughs> you know, she is not doing what I say. What kind of dad am I? So I start yep. feeling shame. Now, let's say that that shame feeling echoes with a shame feeling that my parents made me feel. My father, let's say, humiliated me by putting me down or whatever. And if I haven't made sense of that, then what happens is, yes, the shame arises on the third segment of my rim, but I haven't been doing the wheel practice yet. Mm 
So it just arises as I start feeling shame. It takes over. I am mm -hmm. the shame now. Mm -hmm. And now I feel so humiliated by her. Maybe I poke the toothbrush into her mouth, which she can't stand. And it becomes traumatizing mm -hmm. for her, yep. just like I was traumatized by my father. Yep. But I, I say, oh, but I was just trying to brush her teeth and that's it. Yeah, but I lost track of seeing her mental state, which is, you know, she was terrified of having her teeth brushed or whatever fearful thing. And then I just intruded on her body space. Right. Right. So you can see by not having a container of awareness that could hold the emergence from the rim of the shame and say, oh, look, there's shame. Ooh, it feels like my, how my father used to treat me. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to take this toothbrush and do what my impulse is to do. So it's a space between impulse and action that everyone attributes to Viktor Frankl. But actually, it turns out he never said it. And not only he didn't say it, but his grandson affirmed that <gasps> he didn't say it. But it's wonderful. I love Viktor Frankl's work in Man's Search for Meaning. But yeah. I quoted him, right? He said, the space between impulse and action is yeah. where growth All happens. possibility. Mm -hmm. The copy editor said, show me where he said it. He never said it. I called up his grandson. He said, yeah, I'm sorry. He never said it. So some human being said it. We don't know who. We love it. We're so glad they said it. Yeah, it's a great <laughs> phrase. So let's say human beings said yep. it. Between impulse and action, there's a space. In that space is basically the container of awareness is what we're mm -hmm. saying. And then you can say, wow. I was doing the wheel of awareness practice. My daughter, Alexandra, wasn't letting me brush her teeth. I had the impulse to make sure she brushes her teeth. But I realized the key thing is our relationship. There's plenty of time for her to figure out another way to have her teeth clean. It's about honoring the relationship. Yes, creating structure for the things that are absolutely needed to happen. But if she's in a phase of, you know, she doesn't want someone to brush her teeth, okay, you go with that. And there's, there's obviously lots of challenges to parenting. When do you decide that the structure you need to create needs you to continue trying another way, never shoving something in someone's mouth, but finding a way to entice her to brush her teeth. A game, a song. Yeah, a song. You make a game out of it. Absolutely, you make it playful. So, But the key here in this idea of this, the container is if I've been doing the Wheel of Awareness practice, I have the container so large that I can actually be able to make that pause between impulse and action. That example really brings it all together. Thank you. I'm so grateful for that listener question. I think it really is a beautiful question. And like the fact that she's asking the question is just so hopeful. And I am aware of our time. Speaking of awareness, I mean, this is such a treat. I am so grateful for your time and your wisdom and your brilliance. And I can't wait for our listeners to just get to dive in to this entire conversation. So if there, if people are new to your work, where would you like them to go? I know that the power of showing up and the third edition of The Developing Mind are two of your newest books, but what else do you want people to know about what's going on for you right now? Please feel free to come to our website. It's either drdansiegel.com is one site, but it's a link to the Mindsight Institute where they're parenting opportunities for learning more and more. I would say that, in terms of books, you know, and these all have audio versions as well as some videos, you know, come to our website, find out, you know, Parenting from the Inside Out is often a great place mm -hmm. to start. Uh, any of the other four parenting books I've written with Tina Payne Bryson are also good follow-up. I might go do, you know, The Power of Showing Up after Parenting from the Inside Out and then Whole Brain Child. Mm -hmm. 
if you have an adolescent, you know, brainstorm would be a way to go. And if you want to do work on yourself, you know, the book Mindsight is actually reported as being very useful, as well as the book yes. Aware and its companion workbook, Becoming Aware. And you can come to our website for free and just do the Wheel of Awareness practice. So there's an audio guide that you'll have access to there. So there's lots of ways. And, you know, if you like doing things together with people, you can literally get a group of people together, maybe do a book club, mm -hmm. read together. Things are often better together. And I hope this conversation with Alexandra and with me, you know, is inspiring you to realize relationships are really how we, you know, reinvigor love in our lives. And, you know, those would be ways I would suggest uh, diving in. Thank you so much, Dan, for all that you do and for all that you are. Thank you. Well, thank you, Alexander. Thank you for being you. And it's an honor to be here with you. Thank you, Dan, for joining me here on the show and for your contributions to this field. I loved talking through this poignant listener question together, and I hope our discussion instilled confidence in this listener who is curious about becoming a parent. You can find links to Dr. Dan's work, including his best-selling books, in the show notes. Take care, and I will see you next time on Reimagining Love. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love. <laughs>